The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. And they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. So uh, being a huge Beatles fanatic and always having great Beatles topics here on Talk is Jericho, um, this one is, is is very, very cool. Lori Kay is here and the book is uh, Rock and Roll Name Dropper, which I love the title of that. So many things to discuss, but I mean, basically one of the things that I'm sure you write, write about quite a bit in the book and talk about all the time is you had the very last interview with uh, with John Lennon, which is so ri- ridiculously crazy, amazing, but it's also very melancholy, bittersweet at the same time. Is that kind of your life's story, so to speak? Is that kind of what you lead with most of the time when you're talking about your career? Well, absolutely. That's why my book is called Confessions of a Rock and Roll Name Dropper, my life leading up to John Lennon's last interview. It's a major part of my life. And Quite frankly, December 8th, 1980 is still something I consider to be both the best and worst day of my life. It's interesting, too, because it's one of those things like I was a big Beatles fan when I was very young. I think I was probably nine years old in 1980. And you still it's like everyone remembers no matter what age you were or how old you are that day when you heard that John Lennon had been had been killed. So it is kind of a, a monumental moment in pop culture history for everybody that was that was alive then and 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 has been born and, and are into the Beatles ever since. Yeah, I understand. It's a day that's uh, in in rock and roll history in a horrifying way. Well, let's talk a little before that. I mean, how did you get? I mean, I know obviously you had a super long career, and, and we can talk about that in, in, in a bit. But how did you end up getting an interview with, with John Lennon? Because at the time, as we all know, and for people that might need a refresher, he had been gone for five years. Hadn't done uh, anything. He just basically had stayed at home with his son and his wife and his family. And now Double Fantasy is coming out. And it's a huge thing. It's the return of John Lennon. Uh, was he doing a ton of press at the time? Like things were so much different then, even though it was only 43 years ago. It might as well have been 100 years ago, the way that print has changed and interviews have changed. So kind of tell us what was going on at the time and how you ended up getting this amazing you know, chance. Well, he was not doing a lot of press. Wow, okay. I was working for uh, RKO Radio a couple of years before that. I had written and co-produced what was actually the longest Beatles special in in the United States called RKO Presents the Beatles. It was 14 hours. It was eventually 
elongated to 15 and then 17 hours and called The Beatles from Liverpool to Legend, which is the title that I always wanted in the first place. Mm -hmm. So because of that, I was able to, thanks to my uh, RKO radio exec and, and music director, Dave Sholin, I was allowed to interview George Harrison. And that was in uh, late 78. And then in 79, Dave and um, Ron Hummel, our, our technical producer and engineer, went to London to interview Paul McCartney. Mm. And then after that, when it was announced that uh, John and Yoko were coming out with Double Fantasy, of course, the idea was we were the ones who wanted to do that interview. And um, Dave Sholin and our Warner Brothers and uh, Geffen record exec, Burke Keen, who was with us, made that happen. And we were the only radio, basically radio interview for Double Fantasy after it was released. He did a radio interview in New York before it was released and did a um, United Kingdom interview, BBC, when it was released. But we were the only American one. And uh, of course, we tragically turned out to be his last interview, mere hours before he was shot and killed. Now, let's before we talk about John, I mean, obviously, this is a lot to, to unpack here. I mean, you mentioned you, you got to, to interview George. Did you say you interviewed Paul or your, your, your cohorts did? Oh, no. I, I was there with the uh, Paul interview. Dave Shillen and I interviewed Okay. So let's talk about George first and foremost. He's the first interview. How, how was it interviewing him? Because he, to me is in a lot of ways my favorite Beatle because he's the one that really didn't give a fuck, it seems. You know what I mean? Like, he's the one, like, I think if the Beatles were ever going to reunite, George would have been the one that says, I'd rather just hang out in my garden. That's kind of the vibe I always got. But what was it like talking with him? Well, that's exactly it. He was so cool. And I was interviewing him for the um, elongated version, syndicated version of the Beatles special mm -hmm. and also a show I was doing called Top 100 of the 70s that George had a song that was, was going to be on. So it was a phone interview that I did with him. And he was so warm and so fun to talk to. And we talked about everything from his recent marriage and becoming a father just a couple of months before they had uh, Danny. It was awesome. And he had an album coming out and I asked him, you know, what are you going to call the album? And he said, well, you know, I'm mastering it now, but I don't think I'm going to give it a title. We'll just call it George Harrison because that way people can just go in basically and ask for George Harrison's album. And, uh, <laughs> and I said, well, great. You know, George, which did you prefer being a Beatle or being a solo artist? And he said, actually gardening. <laughs> right. <laughs> His whole thing was he wanted to stay home and raise Danny and be a husband. And that was something to hear afterwards from John Lennon, which was, interesting to me yeah it seems like those guys had such a it's, it's one of those things they basically had such a crazy life from the teens to the late 20s like that's a lot of thing that the beatles that beatles fans and, and people in general forget that their career as influential and huge as it was as the beatles was basically only seven or eight years long so it would seem to me that they would probably had such a crazy early life that they wanted to kind of take it a little bit more easy when they got older yeah and not only that he just seemed to be so into his home life. Mm -hmm. I just thought that was really beautiful. And he wanted to spend time, you know, just doing whatever he wanted, which was planting flowers or, <laughs> or raising, raising his son. And, and that was really sweet. 
So how about the dichotomy between George and Paul? Paul's a little bit more energetic and a little bit more happy guy and let's do some stuff. Like how was that talking with him? Well, Paul's interview was in London and with the incredible Linda, his his beautiful right. wife, and also the latest lineup of Wings, which uh, included Denny Lane, who'd been with Wings since the beginning, and then the two new ones. And, and they were joking when I asked him, so, you know, how, how did you get these guys? Did you have um, reviews or or did somebody recommend them to you or or what? And he made a joke about how, no, we found them camping out on Denny Lane's lawn. <laughs> His whole interview was so full of humor. It just made it really wonderful for me. And I never really had a favorite Beatle. I loved them all for each individual aspect of their personalities and their attractiveness, you know, as a little girl and and just how incredible they all seemed. And each time I interviewed a Beatle, it was like, wow, this is the most exciting person. <laughs> that was true with George and that was true with Paul. And of course, it was really true with John because that was definitely something I've been waiting for for forever. So you get the call, right, Laura? You got it. You're going to go talk to John Lennon. You're going to interview him. So kind of tell us the preparations that you did and, and kind of the leading up to it. Well, the reason that I was always asked to do these interviews is because I was a radio um, reporter, newscaster, news editor. And so I knew how to ask questions. I had to do that on a daily basis for all of my newscasts and do interviews and, and get correct information. So, you know, Dave was basically depending on me to come up with the good questions and you know, send it in the right direction. And of course he did also, but, but that was my thing is thinking, you know, what is it that I want to know? And what we were told before the interview by both um, Bert Keen from the record company and uh, Dave, who'd heard it from uh, other record company people is that we were not allowed to mention the Beatles. We were oh. not allowed to talk to John about the past. This was all about him and Yoko doing double fantasy that was a little bit sad for me, but I thought, no, I understand. Mm -hmm. Move on. It's been five years since he did an album at all. You know, his last album had been rock and roll, which was something I really loved because it was all his cover versions of his favorite rock and roll songs. Yeah. American rock and roll hits that he basically grew up listening to and loved. As a matter of fact, my very first radio special that I ever did when I was an intern at the RKO station in San Francisco, KFRC, was um, called <laughs> the Bay Area's Fight Against Fat. It was all about dieting. And, and so <laughs> I used a lot of music because, of course, it was a top 40 radio station. And the, my favorite song that I used in the show was John Lennon's version of Boney Maroney. Oh, wow. It was wonderful. So just thinking about rock and roll being his last album for double fantasy was amazing to me and gave me a lot of excitement. And I assumed that it would be somewhat okay to ask about his solo work, just as long as we didn't really bring up the Beatles and his past in general. And the funny thing was, is that during the interview, John was the one who brought up the past. Yeah. And John was the one who brought up Paul McCartney and, all of that. So it was, it was really perfect. 
You see, but that's the secret, Lori, and that's how you know that you're a good interviewer. Because I had the same thing, I guess it was probably eight years ago or so when I was interviewing Slash. And Slash is a friend of mine. He's like, hey, let's not talk about Guns N' Roses. Like, I don't care about Guns N' Roses. I'm talking to you, right? And we talked for about 45 minutes, and we started talking about the Rolling Stones. And then he brought up how Guns N' Roses opened for the Stones, and it was a disaster. And then Guns N' Roses, Guns N' Roses. So... That's the best way to do it. And you know why John had that rule or Slash said that to me is the last thing they want is, okay, John, you got a new record. Now tell us about Shea Stadium because you're like, I'm trying to promote this new thing that I'm really excited about. But once he gets comfortable with you, then of course he's going to talk about the Beatles or whatever, right? That's, that's kind of the secret. And being an L.A. SoCal gal, I'm a huge Guns N' Roses fan and always have been. There you go. <laughs> met Slash. I uh, didn't interview him, but met him briefly before my my first wedding because my ex-husband had been a musician and Guns N' Roses had opened for them. Oh, gotcha. <laughs> it was really fascinating to meet them. Um, so that's an interesting comparison slash women. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Before we get to the actual interview, so what, what kind of describe, because I've been to Dakota, uh, you know, been, been to the Central Park and, of course, the Monument and all that sort of thing, but... Uh, the Dakota, it's quite a, you know, obviously it's John's place, but it really is just a big, giant block of a building right on the corner. So, like, did you show up? To the, how does all that work to you even to access John's castle? Well, it was huge. And we had arrived from California the night before, flown in, and we were staying at the um, Plaza Hotel, which was really wild because that's where the Beatles uh, <laughs> had stayed, you know, when they first came to the United States to be on um, Ed Sullivan. It was just really exciting to me on that level. The next morning when we were getting ready to go, I was all excited. We, we took our limo to the Dakota and then got out and walked over to the Dakota and it was huge. And even though, of course, I'd been to New York before, I'd never really hung out outside the Dakota and I didn't expect it to be that big, to be honest. What I really expected was to see tons of fans outside and um there weren't nearly as many as i thought there would be there were just a few mm. i was so excited i was like walking in the clouds almost as opposed to walking on the sidewalk just thinking this is going to be an incredible day and i'm going to have a great time and we got there we got to their assistant's office the outer office and they said well here's what's going on you know john and Yoko are upstairs still taking photos for Rolling Stone with Annie Leibovitz. And my reaction was, oh, no, Annie Leibovitz. Because I'd had a pretty bad experience. Oh, no. <laughs> that I talk about in my book. And, explain. Mm -hmm. and um, but I wasn't going to let it hurt my thoughts about doing the interview. As long as I didn't run into her, I would have been fine. And I didn't. So everything was cool. And those are the famous pictures where John and Yoko are naked and John's just clinging to her. I didn't realize that that was on the last day as well. Well, actually, John is naked, but Yoko is right. dressed. Gotcha. And that's so representative of their relationship, how John really 
connected to her and loved her. And that was a beautiful part of our interview is feeling their relationship being so incredible, even after their 18 month so-called lost weekend. Mm -hmm. It was just wonderful to, to see them together and how much they loved each other and not being in a relationship at the time myself and being very young. I just, I felt like I learned so much from them. So, so you avoid Annie Leibovitz and now they bring you, you're waiting now for the photo session to end. Yes, we waited for the uh, photo session to end, and the assistants took us into their private office, which is basically Yoko's office, even though it was technically John's too, but Yoko, of course, ran the business. So she was the one who spent all the time there uh, for the most part. And we waited there for a while, and and Ron set up the tape uh, recorder and, and player and and, uh, and got the mics out and everything. And, and after quite a while, I had been looking really heavily at this office. And it was just amazing to me. It was a huge white shag carpeting and we had to take off our shoes to walk on it. And there was this incredible coffee table that was really long and glass topped and had man-made serpents winding up the metal (laughs) throughout the entire interview for the rest of the day. I was looking at it thinking, am I imagining this? Am I really here? Is this really happening? And I was sitting on uh, the love seat in front of the coffee table. And then Yoko came in and she said, John's going to be uh, a little while longer, but um, you know, we can hang out here. And, and so we talked for a while and she seemed happy to see me because um, all the rest of the, uh, the guys were guys in there. So, so I think she related to me (laughs) because I was a female. And then after minutes of talking and me showing her what I brought for for Sean, I brought him a gift and she was all excited to see it, it was a wind up uh, fire breathing dragon. And she said, oh, John is going to love this. <laughs> she was playing with it. And then she was really excited to see that I had brought a copy of um, Grapefruit, which was her amazing art and um, poetry book, conceptual art and poetry. And it was so exciting for her because she hadn't seen a copy in years and years and she was already ready to autograph it. She said she was so excited. And then we started talking about um, double fantasy and the dialogue she felt and she and John both felt was necessary between men and women going into the eighties to um, sustain relationships. We talked for about a half an hour, Dave Sholin as well. And, um, and then uh, John came to the door he cracked open the door and as typical of my smart ass uh, personality, especially at the time, I looked at him and under my breath. Uh, so, you know, it didn't, wasn't heard on my mic, but I said, can't you see we're in the middle of an interview? <laughs> he started laughing and introduced himself and apologized for being late. It was wonderful because he came in and he sat down right next to me on the love seat and I was suddenly in disbelief. It was like, this isn't happening. I'm not sitting right here. <laughs> Am I? Wow. And um, we started the interview and it went on. Before you, you start with that, it's interesting whenever you meet somebody of that stature, because obviously, Laura, you'd been around a bit. You've met a lot of people and I'm the same way. The, when I met and hung out with Keith Richards about 10 years ago, it's like you can't believe it's actually a real person. Like the guy you see on TV and you've seen your whole life and like you've met everyone, but this guy was like, oh, 
He's real. And there's a presence to it, but you got to be a professional too, right? But it's also like, I can't believe this. Did you have that feeling? Absolutely. And what made it incredible was John was so validating of things that I said when I would ask a question or come up with um, a response to his answer. And he would say, exactly, or yes, love. And I just felt like, oh my God, this is so different than any response I've ever had before. Even as a child growing up, I, I was raised in a dysfunctional family. So it was like, it was like growing up all over again over several hours. It was, it was amazing. And I felt so complimented and so incredibly validated. So John's sitting beside you. And then, so what's kind of, you know, you're a journalist, you can ask anything you want. So kind of tell us about where the interview went and, and the highlights and the lowlights for you. Dave and Bert both started out wanting to ask John about what he did on a daily basis, which was raising Sean for five years, basically being what he called the house husband. And I was excited to hear about all this, of course, but after a while, I wanted to talk about music. It was time to get going because as much as I loved hearing John talk about Sean and how he thought they were practically twins because Sean had been born on his birthday, mm. October 9th, and how he liked training Sean in terms of what was right to eat as opposed to what was wrong to eat, you know, no, no sugar, no cheeseburgers, that sort of thing. <laughs> it was fun, but on the other hand, I wasn't married and I didn't have kids. And so I wanted to get talking about yeah. So at one point, John absolutely felt obviously the same way. And he said, gee, are we talking about child rearing here? Or are we talking about making records? And I said, yes, exactly. <laughs> making music. And that's where we started. I said, I want to ask you about the urge to make music again. And John burst in in a super loud, funny, and affectionate reply saying, oh, it came over me all of a sudden, love. I don't know what came over me. And I said, yeah, like you were possessed. And he said, I know, I was possessed by the rock and roll devil. <laughs> that was even more of him being so humorous and, and all the way through the interview. That's exactly how he was. So much charm with all four of them, right? Because they've been, they were raised and weaned that way just to be the most charming of guys and super, especially in a, in a public forum when they, when you're getting interviewed, they, they knew exactly what to do and what to say. Even to this day, I saw Ringo last year in concert and like palm of the hand the whole time, you know, he's 82 years old or whatever. And people are just going crazy. He knows exactly what to do. seems like that's what John was doing here as well. Yeah, Ringo just turned 83. Yeah. The sad thing to me is he's the one Beatle that I have never interviewed. Yeah, you still got a chance. <laughs> I wish that, you know, RKO was still around and this was all still happening. And of course, I wish John was still around. Yeah. It's it's probably not going to happen. And that makes me really sad because I'm a huge Ringo fan too. Always have been. Mm -hmm. And not just because I loved Yellow Submarine as a kid, <laughs> but I just always thought he was incredibly attractive and interesting. And the idea that he'd been working on hair, that was <laughs> his former um, job. And so I was just always fascinated by him. But like I said, I was thrilled to be there with John that day. And especially, you know, when we were still talking about how he came to, to 
finally, after five years, start creating music. He said, just suddenly I had like, if you'll pardon the expression, a diarrhea of creativity. Mm-hmm. Started laughing so hard. And just the fact that he would come up with funny answers to my questions just made me feel so good. And I had been nervous because he and Yoko are so intellectual and I was worried that they would they would think that we were, I don't know, top 40 radio, mm-hmm. that, that I was just some fangirl or something. But I really felt like he was approving of, of everything we were asking and saying. And, and that's exactly how it was. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. How long was your interview with John? Totally. The interview itself was about two and a half hours. That's a long time. Yeah. But the thing was, we were with them longer because, you know, afterwards, Ron turned off the tape machine and we were becoming friends and we talked about getting together after the interview. I was so excited to think, oh, my God, I have <laughs> time friends here. And we made plans to get together in San Francisco in a couple of weeks and have dinner at Yoko's favorite Japanese restaurant. And I was so excited because even though the interview had been extremely exciting and breathtaking. There were so many personal things I wanted to talk to him about because, for example, one of the things that really, really impressed me was when I asked him about why he and Yoko were so encouraging to couples to stay together and and everything. And he was saying, well, we like to um, give people the example. I, I like to tell people about things that I love. And he, he started talking about, for example, the island of Bali. I've been to Bali and I love to tell my friends how beautiful it was because they haven't been there. So I want them to know. And this really meant a lot to me because I had lived on Bali for almost a year studying Balinese dance just a few years before. So it was like, here's another thing I have in common with John. Mm. So many other things, you know, our childhood, uh, how we were raised or not raised by members of our family, that sort of thing. Just so many things in common that, that I wanted to talk to him about. And that was, that was one of them. It's so uh, interesting too, that what people might not realize as well as double fantasy. It is a John and Yoko record. This is John Lennon's big return, but there's 14 tunes on it. And seven of them are Yoko's and seven of them are John's. I think that people forget about that. Like he came back still, all 1,000% about Yoko, as well as recording some of the greatest tunes of his career. But it wasn't a whole album's worth. It was half. Well, as he and Yoko both said, both separately and together, it was their dialogue. It was their example of creating a dialogue for other members of relationships to, to see how it should work going into it. Because they felt that how it how it worked for them was... John called Yoko while he was in Bermuda with Sean and she was working still in in New York and started singing her songs that he'd begin begun to come up with. And 
she reacted so well. Not only did she love them, but in a couple hours, she would call him back and start singing a song that would be her reaction to a song that he came up with. So it was back and forth and back and forth. And that was how they looked at going into the 80s, a dialogue between men and women. It was very exciting for both of them. Yoko said, you know, it was really, truly a dialogue in that sense, because I would make one song and sing it to him over the phone. And then he reacts to that in a way and he would write another song and vice versa. And I'd say, oh, all right, that's how he feels. Okay, how about this? And that's how Starting Over and Woman and Watching the Wheels, her three favorite songs of his from Double Fantasy came about and uh, helped her create her responses. Just those three songs you just mentioned are just so great. So many, so many good tunes on that. Was what were the, any other highlights of John's interview that stand out for you? Oh, so many. I loved the story that I already knew about how he and Yoko had met in the first place at her show in in London. Even though I knew, you know, a lot of the details when I mentioned how much that meant to me. He and Yoko both gave me an incredibly detailed version of the story, which is in the full interview. It was wonderful. And John talking about how instantly, basically, they they reacted to each other and really, really felt something for each other. But still, it was, as John said, 18 months before they actually had a date. And Yoko corrected him saying, no, it was two years. (laughs) John gave the full description and uh, and Yoko added to it of that first date, how they basically just created their album, Two Virgins Together, because that's what they did. They were at John's house that he had with the woman he was still married to at the time, Cynthia Lennon, although they were pretty much broken up. She was out of town and he had Yoko come up to what he called his studio, even though it was a room just with a bunch of, of tape decks, basically, and they recorded and and John did impressions of Yoko singing and how he sang and the recording of Two Virgins. And then they talked about doing that all night. And then the next morning, making love as the sun came up. And this was so heartwarming to me. And it just, it made me feel like they were good friends of mine telling me all these personal details. It was incredible. How did John and Yoko meet? Was that where there was like a ladder at an art an art function or something. He had to climb the ladder. Exactly. He wanted to attend what his, his friend who was the um, uh, gallery owner told him would be the um, opening night uh, party before, before the opening day, which was the next day. And he got there. And instead of it being a big party, it was just a very low key, quiet, you know, not many people at all occurrence. And, and he seemed disappointed, but he wanted to, take part, you know, in, in the conceptual art opportunities. And he wanted to, uh, to do things like hammering things that, uh, that Yoko said, you know, were going to be part of the show. So he couldn't hammer them in and she didn't know who he was. She had no idea who the Beatles were practically <laughs> and that he was famous. And so the owner of the gallery came and talked to her and said, no, you know, he's a big guy. You know, this is, this is a lot of money we're talking about. He's very famous. You've got to encourage him. And so she said, okay, you know, you can do this for a certain amount of money. And he looked at her and he said, well, I'll tell you what, for an actual, 
hammering of them in. I would give you actual money, but how about we do it not real amount of money and I won't really hammer them in. And she found that to be extremely positive and they really started getting along at that point. And that's what sort of made that instant attraction. And he was very excited to get up on the ladder and look at the the ceiling, which said yes, because he found that very positive. And in his experience, conceptual art was not especially positive. So he was um, very attracted to, to Yoko's art and Yoko because of that. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Going back to, to the interview, you finish up with them and you said you see hung out and made plans and all this sort of stuff. So then it comes time to leave, right? I mean, this is this has been a great day and 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 Tell us what you experienced after the, after the interview was done. Well, after the interview was done, the exciting thing was Yoko showed John the gift that I had um, brought for, for Sean. And John got so excited and he wound it up the, the um, fire breeding dragon and mm-hmm. it went up and down the glass coffee table. And he was just laughing and saying, Sean will love this. And Yoko said, yeah, if we actually give it to him, we might just keep it ourselves. <laughs> and that was funny. And then, John saw the copy of Grapefruit and he was so excited. He said, I want to autograph this too because I did the um, introduction to it. And I said, well, yes, of course. And so Yoko autographed it and John not only autographed it, but he did a cartoon of him and Yoko's faces and, you know, loved John Lennon. And it was so very exciting to me. It's still my major possession of all times. I still love it so much. And I said, thank you, John. Thank you so much for autographing it. And he said, well, you know, I'm, I'm a real person. I love it when people autograph their things for me too, you know, their books. And I said to him, well, when I come out with my book, I'll be sure and autograph and send you a copy. And he said, oh, great. And so that was, you know, it will be 43 years ago this December. And that's the reason that I eventually wrote my book. It took me... Mm-hmm years and years and years, but I did it because all I could think of was, even though John's not here in my mind, I'll be autographing it and sending it to him, you know, up in heaven, if that's yeah how it needs to be. So it was very exciting. Unfortunately, we had to uh, leave shortly. The guys were all going back to uh, California that night. I was staying in New York to um, spend time with a friend of mine who just moved there. And so the guys were had all had to go to the airport shortly, and um, Yoko uh, had gotten a call from her assistant saying that their uh, driver wasn't able to take them to the recording studio where they were supposed to go for their session that evening that was just coming up. So they asked the guys if they could have a ride to the studio with them. Uh, you know, the guy said, "Yeah, on our way to the airport, but we'll we'll have to leave now." So we um, we all pretty much walked out after after doing interviews and taking pictures together. Unfortunately, as we walked out, there was a very irritating person outside, a guy outside, who 
immediately just bugged me. And um, Bert, the um, the guy from Geffen, gave him a copy of Double Fantasy just to kind of keep him quiet because he was starting to bug us, saying, what were you doing in there? What were you doing? Were we talking to John? What, what were you doing? And so when John and Yoko came out a few seconds later, he asked John to autograph it for the guy. And John did. And then he and Yoko got in the limo with the guys. I, I hugged them all goodbye and, and waved. And, um, and they drove off to take John and Yoko to the record plant and then run off to the airport. And I was standing there waving goodbye. And unfortunately, this creepy guy started bugging me at this point saying, did you talk to him? Did you get his autograph? Did you talk to him? Did you get his autograph? Over and over again and, and other just irritating questions. And I didn't want to talk to him. So I started to leave and he started to follow me up the street. Wow. And I didn't want to turn around because I didn't want to deal with him. Finally, I did and just gave him a dirty look to say, you know, just go away. And I ran off basically to go meet my friend, which I did. And I met my friend and we hung out for a while and then went out to dinner. And then after dinner, went back to my friend's uh, new apartment. And as he was opening the door, I heard the radio on and he said, oh yeah, I leave the radio on because when I get back to my apartment, I want to make sure that nobody's broken in. And if anybody did try and break in, if they heard the radio on, they would think somebody was there. So they would go somewhere else. I said, oh, and then he opened the door fully and we heard the radio bulletin saying John Lennon had been shot and taken to the Roosevelt Hospital following his return to the Dakota from recording studio. And I freaked out and I ran out into the street and got a cab and took it to the Roosevelt Hospital. And it had a big glass door that I could see through as I, as I got out of the cab and I saw Yoko Ono holding on to somebody who I didn't recognize. Obviously, it was a close friend and crying hysterically. And I wanted to go in and hug her. But I realized, no, John wasn't just shot. This is more than that. John is dead. And I just knew it. I just felt it. And I, I, I was started crying myself. And I immediately went uh, down the front stairs of the hospital to the um, phone booth and called the um, RKO Radio New York network head who had been my my news director in San Francisco and told her what was going on. And she hadn't even heard that that John had been shot, let alone that I was fairly sure that he was killed. And um, she said, oh, well, come, come to the headquarters. And so I did and spent the entire night, you know, doing interviews from with people all over the country, reporters and things, and actually all over the world. And then I was on the Today Show the next morning. And before then, the police arrested the um, the guy who had, had been the assassin. And I watched the news a little bit to see who he was because he admitted killing John. And I was not surprised to see that it was the asshole who had been bothering us and following me I never say his name. I never give him the publicity that he wanted, which was basically why he did this. I haven't in 43 years. And even in my book, I don't write his name down and I don't talk about him. That's not, not anything I will ever do. And it was really hard for me to be on the Today Show because not only had I been up all night, but I 
wanted to be crying the whole time. I could barely answer any questions. And I left that morning and went back to San Francisco, wrote the radio special that instead of airing on Valentine's Day, which it was originally supposed to do, but now that Joan was dead, it had to air just days later, just that Sunday, when Yoko was also going to have the 10-minute silent tribute to John. And it aired right after that. It was a three-hour special called John Lennon, The Man, The Memory, another title that I came up with and dedicated it to Yoko Ono. And it was really tragic. And basically, my life has been tragic in many ways ever since. We won't mention his name either, but it's incredible and crazy that there's a famous picture of John signing that copy of Double Fantasy for this guy, and you were right there to witness it. And like you said, that he's following you around. And that's that's just so eerie for you. I mean, my goodness, you were right in the face of the killer. Well, to this day, I still feel guilty for not, not just that I didn't realize that he was going to be killing John, shooting him, killing him, but just because I didn't go to the security desk, you know, right at the Dakota and say, here's a guy, he's bothering people. Why don't you get rid of him? Right. It wasn't necessarily my responsibility to realize that he he had a gun in his pocket, but it was certainly something I could have done to say to the security officers there, hey, this guy is bothering us. You should get rid of him because maybe they would have called the police and maybe the police would have seen that he had a gun in his pocket. You know, that's not something that I necessarily would have recognized that he had a revolver on him, but maybe a cop or a security guard would have. And so I felt incredibly guilty for the first few years and all the years after that, I still do. People tell me, oh, don't feel guilty, Lori. It's not your fault. But that and, you know, several other things still make me feel guilty. Several other things about about John's death make you feel guilty? Well, in setting up the interview... Before the date was chosen, we were called by Yoko's astrologer asking our birthdays and time of birth. And, uh, you know, this intimate information was going to be used to figure out which would be the best day to do the interview. Hmm. And John and Yoko were supposed to be in Hawaii and on the West Coast during that time period. But because of the day I was born and, and the guys were born, they scheduled it, unbelievably, for December 8th, 1980, which turned out to be the freakiest day in rock and roll history, the day the music died, in a way. So that's something I feel guilty about. What if I'd had a different birthday? What if I'd been born at a different time of day? You know, that along with not reporting this creepy guy to the security guard still makes me feel guilty. That's something that, you know, I've been in situations before where something has happened. You're like, man, if only I would have done this, then that could have happened. Or if that would have happened, this would have happened. And a million people can tell you it's not your fault, but that doesn't change the way that that you feel about it, you know? Yeah, it's all personal. And it always will be for me. Yeah. As much as I have always wanted to get in touch with Yoko ever since, I've never been able to because she no doubt associates me with the most tragic day of her life. Yeah. You know, I completely understand. I still would love to hug her and tell her how much that day meant to me and how tragic it was for me too. But compared to Yoko's relationship with John, 
mine was was nothing. So, and once again, too, talk about, we mentioned Bittersweet earlier. You've got this amazing interview with John Lennon that was recorded the day of his death, and you have to then release it posthumously. I mean, that must have been very hard for you as well. Well, the entire interview was not released. It was the show that I wrote with a lot of Okay. But the interview itself has never been officially released. Even the versions of it that are, you know, around that people have come up with uh, on YouTube or whatever that are technically illegal aren't the full interviews and they're not the best quality and uh, they're wrong, basically. After that happens, it's, it's, it's funny because with all of the stuff that went down, I know that um, just a little story you might be interested in that Rick Nielsen and Bunny Carlos from Cheap Trick had laid down some tracks for the record. The producer, Jack Douglas, was also Cheap Trick's producer. Uh, they never used those tracks, but John had a really crappy guitar. Rick Nielsen gave him a new guitar to use. And he said about eight years later, he got it back from Yoko in the mail. It took her that long to kind of get her affairs in order to start giving these personal items back to people. So was your, I guess, re- relationship and connection with John, I mean, how, how is that for you t- to this day? And is it, was it a one day thing that you cherish forever? Do you wish that you could have done more? Would you have done more with him? I definitely felt that our relationship with John and Yoko was going to be a lifetime friendship and that there were going to be more interviews and more talks and everything. I was, I was sure about that. As I mentioned before, I was so excited at the thought of writing the show and, and hearing what, what John would say about it. And he said afterwards that he liked the interview a lot, that he thought it was great. And that to me was so encouraging because whenever people you interview say afterwards, wow, what an incredible talk. Mm -hmm. And I made a joke and I said, great, same time tomorrow. (laughs) And that's just something I always think about. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Do you feel like, um, did you get the sense like that John was back? Like double fantasy is out. Let's play, you know, fantasy here. Do you think he would have gone on tour with this record? Was he ready to embrace the music business completely? Was he still kind of wanting to be at home and this was just something he wanted to kind of get out of his system? He was very excited to be recording again, but he also knew that his son, Sean, who was five at the time, wanted him to be a full-time daddy rather than work. So that was something that took a part of his mental thoughts on, on the whole process. But he was having a great time with Yoko. And although they hadn't thought of touring at all, he just thought of you know, making more records because they already were basically into enough songs for starting the third album. Mm-hmm. What happened was one of the session musicians said, wow, this is so much fun. Let's keep it going. Let's make this live. Let's go on tour. And John started thinking, well, wow, if I could do this with Yoko, that would be the way to do it because you you want to go out with your, your wife, your best friend and have a great time. Mm-hmm. And so he wasn't necessarily ready to start 
another band, but just, you know, him and Yoko and session musicians. But he, as he told us, he wasn't sure if he wanted to do big venues like Madison Square Gardens or do small venues. But he was worried if he did small venues that reviewers would say, oh, John can't fill up a big a big venue anymore, you know? Mm-hmm. So he was thinking of all that. So it would have been a while before they went on tour, he said, because he wanted to get albums out. He wanted to make sure that they had plenty of songs to sing live so that he didn't have to come up with Beatles songs to do. And mm-hmm. that's when it was really funny. He started singing yesterday, <laughs> yeah. which was great to hear him do. It was it, He had such an incredible sense of humor and was so excited about life going forward. And, told us that he had so much more that he wanted to do and um you know his life would be incredible and and long and he would have a lot more music to make and you know sadly within a few hours that obviously was never going to happen did you um you mentioned before when we started talking about the whole slash and guns and roses you mentioned that he did start talking about the beatles during your interview what was his kind of what was his thoughts about the beatles when he was when he was discussing it with you well what, he didn't really talk about his thoughts with the Beatles. What he talked about was meeting Paul McCartney for the very first time and how Paul turned him on to George and George turned him on to Ringo and how they all got together and how John felt that because he found Paul, Paul, Paul had showed up at, at a show that John was doing with the Quarrymen, his band at the time, mm-hmm. and asked Paul to join the band between that and years later, meeting Yoko and wanting to connect up with her, that he felt that he was an incredible talent scout. And that was an amazing (laughs) thought too, as well. Last few things here. Do you feel, once again, playing armchair, you know, Booker armchair quarterback, do you think that Paul and John would have, would have reunited at some point? Well, they were friends. Yeah. They were still talking to each other. John talked about getting in touch with George and, and, and Paul and hearing from Ringo. Um, but I don't think that there would have been an actual reunion, to be very honest, because they had already refused the opportunity and a lot of money for a number of times. And even though Paul, when we interviewed him, told us that just um, a few months before our interview, there had been a get-together um, at Eric Clapton's wedding mm-hmm. uh, him and George and Ringo on stage with with other musicians, uh, but John wasn't there, so it wasn't a reunion, and he didn't think it was that great. So he was glad that nobody had recorded it, and uh, you know, only people there heard it. It seemed like everybody was just on their way to their next step, and they didn't need a reunion. But they appreciated their growing up in the Beatles, but they were on to their next level, and. That actually seemed to make a lot of sense. As much as I would have loved to have gone to re- a reunion because I was at an original Beatles special when I was a little kid, it still didn't seem like that would ever happen. I think just being a musician myself and just knowing how guys are and how people are, I think that Paul and John would have would have done something together. I don't think there would have been a full-blown Beatles reunion because of George, like we talked about earlier. I feel that John and Paul, they wouldn't have been able to help themselves. They would have Maybe John, after a few more years of doing this sort of thing, I think they would have said, hey, you want to come over, bring your guitar? Let's write a few things. Well, that would have been extremely cool. And yeah. it was maybe maybe absolutely true. 
But who knows, right? But um, so you mentioned it took you 43 years to write Confessions of a Rock and Roll Name Dropper. What finally decided was made you decide to write this? Because writing a book is not easy. It's not. And especially when you have the guilt, as I do. And Still the guilt of, of, of not warning everybody about, about this guy, about the assassin? Absolutely. Gotcha. So not only was I guilty, but I was also working not just full time, but day and night practically in TV production. And so I... I didn't have time to even think about writing a book. And then the pandemic hit, mm. which production and gave me time to sort of think about my past. And I started writing and reaching out to literary agents and publishers. Eventually, about a year in, production started up again. So I started working again. So I had to stop. But then when that job ended, I started writing again, finished the book, got the publisher and that's what I've been doing ever since. And I probably won't be working in production anymore, not only because of the strikes that are on right now, right. but also because I'm mostly concerned about promoting my book and making sure that people know the story and how I feel and how much I, I loved that last day of John's on Earth. What's your favorite story in the because you have, you've had such a long career? What's your favorite story in the book that's not a John Lennon story? Is there somebody else that you met with that was had a had something that was made you smile or some story? Well, I interviewed so many others, and a lot of them are quoted and described in the book. Everybody from George Martin, uh, the Beatles producer, who was wonderful to talk to, <laughs> wow. and that was when um, his book came out. All You Need Is Ears, <laughs> amazing memoir. And actually, that was inspiration for writing my book as well. So that was really cool. And I also loved interviewing the Ramones, my mm. incredibly favorite punk band, and Talking Heads, New Wave, and loved interviewing them. I loved interviewing Little Richard, who I quote a lot in my book. I see a Bowie book behind you. Did you ever, ever interview Bowie? Yes, I did. How was that? I'm a big Bowie fan. How, how was it talking with him? I'm a huge Bowie fan, always have been, and was so upset when he passed away as well. He was um, one of my first incredible concerts when I was in school and uh, Ziggy Stardust days. So it wasn't like talking to David Bowie. It was like talking to Ziggy Stardust. It was amazing. And that was for the... Um, the special I was writing, Top 100 of the 70s, mm -hmm. that same, I think it was within a 10-day period, I interviewed Mick Jagger as well. Wow. <laughs> that was really incredible. So, yeah, lots of amazing interviews. Well, it's, gonna, it's, a, it's a great read. It's a great book from your awesome career. And, and what a story you have. Last question for you. What's your favorite John Lennon song? Well, it's really hard to say because I love all of them on Double Fantasy. Mm -hmm. I listen to it now and it means so much to me to hear them following his passing almost 43 years ago. But if I were to go back in time and really be honest, it would be a couple off the Imagine album, his solo album. I loved the song Imagine. And especially during the interview when he said he should have credited Yoko as the songwriter as well, because a lot of it was taken from her book, Grapefruit, where she talked about, mm. imagine this, imagine that. So I thought that was really beautiful of him to say that in our interview. That's one of my very favorite songs of, of all time. 
I love um, Nobody Told Me and just the fact, like you said, that they were still recording songs for Double Fantasy. Like Nobody Told Me is such a killer song. It wasn't even on the record. They had to wait until until he was gone before they were able to put it out. You know, just just to show the quality of work that he was doing to have a song that good that wasn't on Double Fantasy. They had to wait. Yeah. He was such an amazing songwriter anyway. My other favorite song from Imagine is Crippled Inside. Mm. That to me is just breathtaking. And there's no song of John's that I don't like. Well, once again, one of the greatest artists and one of the greatest personalities in rock and roll history. And even though you have some guilt, that's an amazing story to tell about his last interview ever. And it was a good one. So I appreciate you being here with with me today. Thank you. And thank you for saying that you like my book. I hope uh, everybody else does too. Check it out. It's a great read. Thank you, Chris. Nice to talk to you.